Hello and welcome to The Queer Thesperience. I am your host, Casper Oliver. I use both he, him, and they, them pronouns. I am a queer, non-binary performer, and basically anything I can get my grubby hands on at this point, I'm all in. And I am joined by a guest that I say this all the time, but I am very excited to be interviewing this absolute delight. So if you could please introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Peaches Christ, and uh, I use the pronouns she, her, and I um, define, identify as a queer uh, entertainer, filmmaker, and cult leader. Which is absolutely delightful, and I really just need to start right off the bat, because this has been, this has been rattling around in my mind. Uh, how did you come up with the name Peaches Christ? Well, I um, was a Catholic-raised child. So, you know, I went to church every Sunday, and I went to Catholic school. And so religion, um, especially Catholicism, and religious iconography was always sort of part of my life. And then, like a lot of queer kids, you know, when I realized that, that I was queer, and that this was not in line with this community's teachings and that I was, you know, um, in their eyes, a sinner. Um, I actually kind of started to break away from the church and I was not confirmed and my parents supported me. I think my parents knew I was queer before I knew. <laughs> um, so they weren't that surprised when I said I didn't want to do confirmation. And I'll tell you that I ended up becoming a very rebellious punk teenager, you know, who became obsessed with, you know, um, anarchist filmmakers like John Waters and, you know, movies like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And, you know, that was really my entrance to drag was through those filmmakers and films. And so when I chose a drag name, I did kind of want it to be a middle finger to the Catholic Church. And I did... At the time, I remember, you know, parody names were very popular, almost more popular then, back in the 90s, than they are now. So, you know, there was Jennifer Anus Torn and, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, suppository spelling and, you know, things like that, like where you would take some trendy celebrity's name. And I remember thinking, if I'm going to do that, I should choose a celebrity who's like going to be around for a while. You know, that's not some someone that's not going to be trendy, someone that's not going to go out of vogue. And I remember thinking like, oh, Jesus, really, you know, yeah. it's going to be around for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but honestly, I think part of it was just that at the time, the religious iconography, the gore of Catholicism, the oh, yeah. sort of cross-dressing of priests, you know, all of that stuff was very inspiring to me and I, I mean quite frankly looking back at it you know um i saw it as an angry thing whereas now i don't see it that way um because you know i i've like lived long enough and been angry enough to kind of in a sense sort of cross over so i'm always kind of giddy nowadays when someone's offended by it because it's you know, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I think it's absolutely delightful. I, I didn't grow up Catholic. I was raised uh, 
a very Southern Midwestern Baptist. Wow. <laughs> oh so, yeah. The very fire and brimstone. So when I heard that, yeah. I was like, oh, I, I, I really dig that drag name <laughs> like for well, very similar reasons. Well, funnily enough, uh, my mother uh, is Catholic. And so she uh, got to sort of raise us, you know, in her, in her faith. But my father stayed Southern Baptist. So I grew up, you know, with both and actually went to Southern Baptist church with my grandparents and everything growing up. So, you know, it was hilarious. Cause like, you know, part of the Southern Baptists were like the, you know, they thought the Catholics were crazy. Cause we, you know, we prayed to Mary and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you're going to look at anyone else and go, you're going to judge them. Like <laughs> Catholicism, it's all, crazy. It, yeah, it's all yeah, yeah. wild. Like it the, is. Oh, the only thing that I can give credit to for Baptist churches is, um, you definitely get some cool music numbers in Baptist Absolutely. Churches. I mean, the gospel singing, the choirs, incredible. Oh, yeah. In church, I remember going to, like, church when you're Catholic is an hour long. You go, right. you get, you know, you, you sit, you, it's an hour. When we would go to church with my grandparents, it was like Sunday school, and then the service, and then there was like a meal, you know, like yeah. every Sunday it was like Thanksgiving was prepared at the church. You know, we were there all day long, it's but it was actually very much more fun than Catholic church. Oh yeah. And a lot better on the, on the knees and the lower back with the standing and the <laughs> kneeling and the standing. I have been to one Catholic yeah. wedding and that is enough. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. So, uh, all right. Now this is a question that I commonly ask, um, okay. my guests is when did you start to figure yourself out within your queer identity? Like, when do you remember it beginning? Cause it's all, it's a constant journey, but when do you remember it beginning? You know, I feel like because I wasn't, so for me, queerness is more than just my sexuality. It's, right. it's, 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 it's the fact that when I was a kid, everything I liked was, gendered female you know i i most of my friends were girls mm -hmm. um most of the things i like i wasn't that into sports or athletics you know shocker i was into drama i mean i was like a quintessential sissy you know yeah um and so for me and it wasn't just that it was also that i was into anything macabre anything dark anything you know haunted um spooky so uh I learned really early on that I was weird, you know, and that I didn't fit in. And I, and I think for me, that's always been the way I, my, my sexuality and my um, queer identity is completely infused with, I mean, I look at there's, there's gay people and then there's queer people, you know, and I definitely tend to, to identify more as a queer person because my otherness, whether it's with gender or um, my fascination with, you know, whatever, horror, you know, it's all kind of interconnected. Um, so that was probably when I was, I don't know, like seven or eight years old, nine, 10, or, you know, I was a kid. Um, yeah. we, like we're remembering now, I mean, my parents, they they um, have reminded me of things like, you know, my, my absolute fascination with certain, you know, um, things growing up, you know, like there was this haunted house called the Morbid Manor that was at the end of the boardwalk where we grew up in Ocean City, Maryland. And I would go, they would, other, other, other kids would go on all the rides and I would sit in front of the Morbid Manor and just watch and just watch people go in and come out and watch the, you know, the, the teenagers and the, the ghoul makeup, you know, scare people. And I was living 
And this is like eight years old. So I think I was always a black sheep. Now, as far as sexuality goes, um, that like, as far as knowing that I was, you know, a sinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a filthy sinner, Peaches. Yes, but I was attracted. Um, I would say that was probably early high school. And then as far as my attraction to drag performance, um, which for a lot of us, because remember, I'm really much older than a lot of drag queens working now, you know, uh, I'm 46. So when I was in high school, we're talking late 80s, early 90s, drag was not on TV. It was not popular. It was really a transgressive, subversive thing. So a lot of us that were compelled to perform in drag, it's more than just costume. I'll say that. Oh, yeah. You know, it was a reclaiming of this feminine, you know, part of myself that had been shamed or, you know, um, you know, that was really, really, you know, as a little boy, quote unquote, you know, I was taught that I was a fag. I was a sissy. I was like mm -hmm. a girl, you know. So drag for me was a way for me to say, not only am I a gay man, but I'm also this other thing. Yeah. I have this, this female thing inside of me. And I don't think of drag or my, my drag as in, in, an impersonation of a woman. It's actually my feminine expression, right. you know, of something that's inside of me. And I would say that I didn't understand that until college, you know, where, um, and even then I remember people being like, I mean, you know, we've come a long way because being a drag performer, you know, a lot of people back then, even gay people didn't understand the difference between a trans person or a drag performer or mm -hmm. the fact that you could be both or you could be something in between, you know? Yeah. So it was, um, you know, we've, we've definitely come a long, long way since, you know, that. Time. Yeah. And it's really a shame that how drag, it's a lot better now, but I still see it in my circles um, with me being in like my mid twenties, where there's a lot of misconception on, you know, drag makes us look bad. It's this whole thing, but we have our any semblance of rights right now because of trans like yeah. drag queens you know yeah. it's like so it's like no <laughs> that's not how this works you you can't benefit off their backs and then say no screw you like it's it's and those and yeah and that was it at a time when you know the trans there were in in the eyes of people who hate us mm -hmm. there was no difference between a trans woman and a drag queen all the same, right? So with the the riots, both at Stonewall and here in San Francisco with Compton's Cafeteria, which actually happened before Stonewall, and I think you'll see this around the world, you know, what you find is the people on the front lines are the butchest dykes. Yeah. You know, the, the feminist queers, the drag queens, the trans men and women, the non-binary folks. And I think part of that's that we have given ourselves over to who we are and we don't have much left to lose because you know we've risked everything already right whereas when you're when you fit into society better when you're a, a sweater gay and you can kind of slip in and out of the shadows and stay closeted you know it's a little easier to kind of maintain your privilege hold on to that you know but for most of us that are drag performers or trans folks 
my experience has been we're usually the first activists to kind of jump into action. <laughs> yeah, because it's like yeah. we've already we got nothing left to lose. And exactly. we'd like some rights while we're here. <laughs> and let's face it, we're brave. I mean, I hate yeah. to say it, but we're brave and we've, you know, like you have to you have to 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 whatever, to 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 wear women's clothes if you're a man, to come out as trans, to to present a non uh, to you know a non-binary um, persona or or you know um, like just you know like I have a lot of friends who basically like I call it gender in a blender right like people are like I, I don't know that. what I don't know what that is I you know that. <laughs> you know but that's like in, in my world that's how so many of us live so when it comes time to you know um, fight guess who the first people on the front lines are still to this day, you know? Yeah. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I noticed this while, you know, kind of learning more about you, like going through social media and just seeing all that you do. And something that I've talked with a few other guests before is the tie with the queer community and horror is very strong. And I did a whole episode about that, but I want to hear your ties with your queer identity and your horror like fascination because you mentioned it's been around since as long as you or your parents can remember about you yeah yeah it's interesting because when i was a kid and i was subscribing to fangoria magazine and i like loved all these horror films and you know i would go to conventions and things i felt so alone because i didn't see queerness you know there now what i know now is there were tons of little boys like me and little girls who were queer, but we didn't know, we didn't have connection. We didn't know each other. So, so in our mind, horror was kind of a straight thing, mm-hmm. you know, like everything was, they oh, owned yeah. everything, you know, and, and in, in many ways, you know, the people making horror were straight men. Let's face it. They were, you know, it was a misogynistic, you know, uh-huh. um, genre. It, it was problematic in a oh, lot of yeah. ways, but, for queer people, I think we were drawn to it because there was this way that we sort of exercised our demons. We both identified with, uh, we we identified, for me, I identified with both the slasher, the freak, the murderer, you know, like Norman Bates or Freddy Krueger. Like there was part of me that had that sort of identification because of the otherness. But I also identified with the final girl because she was, you know, usually book smart and she wasn't popular and she, you know, usually was more feminist. You know, if you look at Nancy and A Nightmare on Elm Street or uh, Laurie Strode and, you know, Halloween, they were strong women. They were, mm-hmm. they were, they were nerds. So I could go like, Oh my God, they're heroes of mine. And I realized later so many queers identified with those characters, you know, in that way because of the otherness. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, so nice to hear you say that because like when one of the first ever horror films i ever saw was um resident evil 2 specifically Uh and that is also the movie that made me realize i like women because mia jovovich um (laughs) and even i have a crush on her you know (laughs) like i i remember my coming out (laughs) my coming out to my mom was literally me telling her hey i also like girls and Uh she she had resident evil on on the tv and she looked at the tv and she looked at me she's like yeah same. And she just looked at Alice. Same. <laughs> but it, it, you mentioned that, and it's like one of the movies that have, has always stuck out to me 
is Hannibal Rising with Gaspard Ulliel, uh, the uh, Silence of the Lambs prequel, pre-prequel, I guess. Right, right, right. <laughs> and because there's a level where you aren't really supposed to identify with Hannibal Lecter because he's this cannibalistic, you know, whatever. But the way they portray him, like me, when I was, when I was going through, you know, dealing with like trauma and being othered because of gender and sexuality, it's like, I saw this and I'm like, well, obviously I don't want to kill and eat people, but like a lot of the other stuff that's going on right now, I feel that. Yeah. And so exactly as you said, it's very much, um, that connecting with that otherness and also it doesn't help that a lot of villains and not just in horror but like you see it in cartoons and everything oh, disney all over the place yeah so right? queer coded yeah and alfred you know, hitchcock was obsessed with queer villains disney's obsessed with queer, well hollywood really and i still think it's okay to enjoy those identifications oh, like yeah i don't think we have to take them away i mean a movie like sleepaway camp is you know Uh, on its surface, incredibly problematic. I mean, is it homophobic? Yes. Is it transphobic? Yes. But when queer people take a movie like that and make it their own and enjoy it, it's okay. You know, I don't think we have to be shamed. Now, do I think the filmmaker, it's like Showgirls, you know, I love Showgirls, you know. Is it misogynistic and problematic? Absolutely. But can we take it and enjoy it and still acknowledge that it's wrong. You know, I think you can. And there was this point where luckily queer activists boycotted Hollywood enough or protested. And it was really the year, actually funny that you bring up Hannibal Lecter because it was the year that Silence of the Lambs came out, you know, um, which was such an amazing movie. But I can remember, I was in high school when that came out and it was the same It was the same year that Basic Instinct came out. And queer activists had had it with the representation of queer people always being killers. Yeah. Because you've got, you know, Basic Instinct, Sharon Stone's, you know, bisexual and she's all these lesbian scenes, but she's also, you know, killing men with an ice pick or whatever. And then you've right. got the same year Hannibal um, Lecter, who, uh, Probably isn't very straight based on Anthony Hopkins, you know. <laughs> no, uh, no. But also Buffalo him. Bill. And then you've got Buffalo Bill, which is so problematic. You know, if you rewatch the movie now, they kind of, I, I kind of didn't realize that, like, what they're saying is that Buffalo Bill, the reason he's so twisted is because he thinks he's trans, but he's not trans. He's missed. I'm like, it doesn't let you off the hook. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still. Just totally, you know, this is also fucked up. That being said, so many of us queers love those movies. Right. And so it's this interesting thing where I actually agree with the activists. Like, this can't be the only representation. But then there's this other part of me that's like, oh, but it's so delicious. And I yeah. love it so much, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a weird dichotomy, you know. Yeah. And I, I it, it would just be nice to have movies where... Maybe I just have more queer people than just the villain. Like maybe if the villain is queer, cool, but can the heroes also be queer? You know, well, there you go. Because there's where activists actually, you know, once again, you know, made a difference because it was like a, a, a year or two later, like you started to see, um, I remember Philadelphia came out and Tom Hanks played a man, a gay man with AIDS. And all of a sudden, you know, like these queer activists, really did, you know, by getting out there and protesting those movies, they kind of forced the hand of Hollywood to change. And what's interesting now is 
seeing, I mean, we didn't get, you know, what's in, we got the portrayal of queer people as normal, but we still didn't get access to mm. um, the director's chair. You know what I mean? Like we, we it, that took many more years for, for queers, for women, and still to this day, if you look at the number of black folks who get to make movies, it's, it's really quite small, especially in the horror world, you know? Oh, yeah. So it, it, that has only been more recent where it's like, oh, you can be openly queer and you can make a big studio horror movie or you can be black and you can make Get Out or whatever, you know? So yeah. we know it's a long time coming. <laughs> and, but the tides are changing, which is so nice to see. Thank God. Like, I, I'm, I'm not particularly a huge fan of slasher. I prefer, like, the psychological horror films. But if someone could make a slasher film about, like, you know, a bunch of kids go on a road trip, car breaks down in the middle of the woods, and then hijinks ensue, right? Except it's a bunch of queer theater kids or it's a bunch of <laughs> queer marching band kids. No, those marching yeah. band kids would survive. Have you seen how shredded yeah. marching band kids are? They've yeah, got I bet. stamina for weeks. <laughs> like, yeah. Queer cheerleaders right like oh, i look yeah. at those queer cheerleaders it's like those guys are more athletic than the football players you know yeah is uh, those yeah. Che- <laughs> those cheerleaders are used to holding other human beings yeah. in the air them around and stuff yeah so give me that and i will i will stomach a slasher film i, I know think you've got a good concept I just gotta make it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so what, your tie with horror as Peaches Christ, uh, mm-hmm. d- did your start, did you kind of start in the horror scene or did you end up in the horror scene? So honestly, uh, as a drag performer, I've always, it's always, again, been kind of infused for me with cult movies and horror because my my love for drag was was sort of sparked by the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Divine and John mm-hmm. Wa- and those John Waters movies. So um, that was really my first attraction. Then I studied film in college, and so when I started making movies, uh, and I and as a drag performer, I my show uh, here in San Francisco, you know, which started back in 1998, it was a cult midnight movie show where we were doing the drag show in a movie theater before screenings of movies. Um, so horror has always been completely infused with, with all of that. And, um, and so then I started with my drag friends making horror movies um, and showing them to our audience and stuff. Um, and so Peaches has always been, you know, and I've had a few dreams. Like one, one dream was to, you know, make a feature film and I did, you know, it was a, a, a it's a horror movie. Uh, called All About Evil, starring Natasha Leone and Elvira is in the movie. And, you know, and then another dream of mine was to have a big, you know, like a haunted house, like a haunted attraction, which I have now. So Peaches, my love for um, horror in many ways has been channeled through Peaches and through the success of Peaches, I've been able to like open these other doors. Right. Uh, that, you know, I would have, when I started this career, I never thought of it as a career. In fact, anyone who had any sense would have told me, you should stop doing what you're doing because it's going to close doors for you, you know, but that's not been my truth, thankfully. Yeah. And it's so, it's so cool that you just mentioned Elvira because I've met her a few times and she's an absolute delight. I yeah. adore Elvira so much. Um 
so yeah elvira and i went to your father's convention in indianapolis yeah and together that, yeah that's, that's how i met your dad yeah, yeah and that's how i met elvira because yeah. i've been her personal assistant i think twice oh uh, that's great yeah, yeah. Oh. you know she's just the best oh yeah, yeah. her and gaten matarazzo were my two favorite actors to work with oh fantastic um but so what has your experience been like when it comes to things like going to these horror conventions working in these theaters like how has the reception been within the horror community maybe versus like from the beginning versus the current that's a great question because when i started um it was very very different and and you know, I remember going to some of the conventions with Cassandra, with Elvira and, you know, um, and it was kind of amazing because there would be like, you know, some guy dressed up as Leatherface and someone else, you know, um, you know, like really terrifying shit. But me as Peaches Christ was really the scariest thing there to most of these straight dudes in the Midwest, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. They, were like, they kept one eye on me at all times even though, you know, some guy, some crazy clown with a chainsaw is standing in the corner. And uh, Elvira, I keep calling her Cassandra. I, I mean, feel that. Yeah, I feel yeah. that so hard. Yeah, but uh, Elvira and I would be, like, laughing because, you know, you could see that, like, they were really terrified of me. Um, and, 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 and they hadn't seen a drag persona in that world, you know? Um, over the years it's changed you know and and especially when i got to go on the road with um all about evil and there was sort of this this um except this excitement around a drag queen had made a feature film you know and it yeah. was a real horror movie and you know like there was there was definitely an embrace now once in a while i would meet someone who you could just tell they did not like me. They did not want drag in their horror world. They did not like gay people. You know, like you could just tell. And it was like, you know what? I don't care because I'm never going to win you over. And nothing I ever make is for you. Yeah. I, I don't care. You know, I'm not, I'm not looking to impress you or change your mind. Um, so what's been cool is I think a lot of people who genuinely love horror have now embraced the queer you know, uh, the celebration of queer people in horror because, and much like, you know, black folks getting into horror with, you know, Get Out and, and Lovecraft Country. And, you know, the more, the more voices in horror, the more women that make horror movies, the better the movies are going to be because we've seen the same stories a million times. And so I think it's definitely changed a lot. Um, yeah. Now I feel like I get embraced, you know. And now there's stuff like Dragula, you know, with the Boulay brothers that, that never, never existed when I was starting out, you know. And it's so nice to see this higher level of inclusivity. Like we've got a long way to go, but as I feel as a community, it's getting better. As an industry, I don't know, but as a community, right. I feel I would like do it that. Yeah. I feel like it's getting better. Um, one of the things uh, that you said is like, well, I'm not making this for you. So many times when my friends and I and a lot of my collaborators and I, all queer, I, I can't think of a not queer person that I actively and 
frequently collaborate with right. when we start making this queer content and we have this joke where it's like we'll quote that one line in Rocky Horror I didn't make it for you because <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> this is this is for us and our kindred and right. if, if you enjoy it then wonderful but if you yeah. don't then don't worry about it right but it's so often that the um a lot of like the white especially the white male fans are like no this needs to be enjoyable for me where it's right. like right. i ah and as exactly as you said what's, if hmm? what's really funny to me about that is their realization now because so much of the queerness was coded mm-hmm. right? like it's like oh really you love pinhead and the cenobites well, guess what? You know, Clive Barker and the whole thing is is a queer, like Hellraiser is an AIDS allegory and the Cinnabites are S&M freaks. Yeah. So like, you know what I mean? Like there's queerness. And there's always been queerness in horror since the beginning of time. And, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, it's like there, there's always been these components. And if you didn't see it, you know, well, it doesn't mean it wasn't there. Yeah, or like how this isn't horror, but how Matrix was recently con- uh, confirmed to be a trans allegory. Right. Or the, the entire Matrix series. And it's like, we are here and we are making these things. And I, if they, I well, feel that's like- the Wachowski siblings coming out. I mean, uh, that is so, to me, they are so inspiring because mm-hmm. here's, two people that are obviously clearly so brilliant, so talented, and they, you know, had made, well, one of my favorite movies, Bound, which was their little, you know, little sort of indie hit, but then they made this incredible franchise, The Matrix, and then they're making movies like Speed Racer, right? Like huge Hollywood, big budget, million, multi-million dollars movies, and that's when they decide to come out. Yeah. Not when they're, you know, down on their luck or their careers are over. Right in the middle of all their success, you know, I think Lana first, you know, came out. I'm a trans woman. And Hollywood had to reconcile that because she made them millions and millions and millions of dollars. So what a what a cool move, you know, what a what a brilliant thing to do. And then we start to get the, you know, content like Sense Eight, mm-hmm. you know, where they're they're able to go to to Netflix as trans women and say, we want to make this show and it's gonna cost a fortune and it's gonna be totally inclusive of queer people and trans people. And we're gonna shoot it all over the world, but because they're the Wachowski siblings they can get the money. It's really amazing. And it's just, and as you said, it's inspiring, especially for uh, like trans creators and filmmakers. It's like, oh, well, there's, you know, we never succeed, but we do, you know? Absolutely. It's an uphill battle for sure, but yeah, there. And what, what, well, there is a shitty side to that, that I guess, you know, I really, I really applaud their, bravery because they mm-hmm. did risk a lot by coming oh, yeah. out they didn't know what was going to happen um but uh it, it it's that thing where you wonder if the, well we know we know they wouldn't have been get, given the same amount of access as trans women if they started their career that way right. and that is still so fucked up and awful right yeah so they had to kind of like go stealth and like prove themselves 
but I do think that it's changing and, and it's, you know, hopefully, you know, like if you look at Ryan Murphy and sort of his, you know, world of horror and taking over, you know, basically FX and being so openly queer about everything, you know, sometimes it takes, sadly, a white gay man to get in a position of power to be able to create a TV show like Pose and for someone like Ryan Murphy to do the right thing and step back and go, okay, I'm gonna hire all trans writers, all trans producers, trans directors. We're gonna have trans people, trans actors in front of the camera and trans crew. And Ryan used his privilege, you know, to do the right thing. And now we see these trans um, Hollywood figures, like a good friend of mine is Our Lady J, who was, you know, the writer on Transparent, and then she became the producer, and now she's producing Pose. And it's like, this is happening quickly. You know, this is amazing. Like, this is awesome, you know? So I really am excited for young trans people right now because you can be openly trans and go out and actually, you know, get a great job. In fact, it might be be to your benefit <laughs> yeah yeah it's like you yeah. never would imagine but like you're yeah. now starting to see where people are actively calling out for trans writers and trans because they're trying to be oh. more inclusive so they're inviting we're being invited to the table and it's not i feel like there needs to be a lot more openness for it but it's it's beginning it's 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 starting and and, and and because of the success of pose and because of the the um the, the activism around Hollywood, it's uncomfortable now for Scarlett Johansson to play a trans person. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, like, let's not do that. And so you've got this now, now you've got this need all of a sudden for like, oh, we need to, we need to hire more openly queer people. We need to hire more openly trans people. Like we need, you know, so this is a, it's an exciting time to be, you know, young and queer either in front of the camera or behind the camera. Yeah. And another point, just as we talk about queerness and horror, is um, a talk that I've had before is one of the things that um, can really draw queer people to horror, especially queer made horror um, or very queer inclusive horror, is that when you watch things like rom-coms or sci-fi and stuff like being trans or being queer is the other, mm -hmm. um, where it's like it's usually the aliens or it's just the gay best friend who gets no character arc, right? It's, right. it's the other. But when you see, you're starting to see a lot more queer inclusive horror or kind of the abstract where it's the, the queerness it's just there yeah like one of my favorite podcasts is welcome to night vale and there are so many queer characters and the the core performers queer and uh -huh. the the main character you listen to almost every single episode is a gay man and at, at this point in the narrative he is now married to another male character and it's just it's just a thing it's right, just right. a thing yeah. well while you have a cloud raining dead animals outside that's the weird thing <laughs> but right. i'm you know and so it's you're starting to see it as it's just there because we're just there yeah yeah it's true it's really true and I, I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit about when it comes to queerness in horror made by not queer people. 
versus queerness in horror written by queer people. Right. Okay. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, certainly, for example, like things like Sleepaway Camp, where, you know, I want to ask the director, like, what happened to you? You know, for for the listeners who don't know, like this, this character uh, is traumatized. Uh, uh, There's a series of trauma, but basically, this whole sort of awfulness is set off because someone sees their father in a relationship with another man. Right. And then there's this, you know, other storyline and I don't want to give it away, but you know, there's a whole uh, trans villain reveal. And clearly the filmmaker was using um, both gayness and, you know, being trans as a sort of a, a weapon of um, fear and disgust and, horror you know and i think one of the reasons we like that movie now in a camp way is because we we as queer people can embrace it and enjoy it and laugh at it but if you really look at it as a surface reason the straight male making that movie was weaponizing us was weaponizing Mm -hmm. our queerness and it's the same thing with um a nightmare on elm street part two um you know there's this great documentary out about that whole story called scream queen my nightmare on Elm street. And, um, I'm, I'm proud to be in the film and, um, yeah. And I get to talk a little bit about what we're talking about, but the thing is, is they were using the, the, they were playing up young men, especially young boys who were going to see this slasher film, their fear of queerness. They were using Mm -hmm. homophobia, um, to their, you know, uh, credit they were using it smartly by like you know weaponizing um it in a in a way that made it dangerous for queer people you know mm-hmm. um that's not the way a queer person would make a horror movie we just wouldn't do that you know what i mean like so um yeah it's it's interesting how the tables you know are turning now when you you allow um women to make you know genre films and queer people to make, you know, to tell queer stories. I'm trying to think of, um, you know, some recent films, like, well, Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story is really, you know, I think interesting because you've got, you know, I've just started watching the latest one, which is a slasher send-up, and it's called uh, 1984. And, um, And so you've got a lot of queer characters, but one of the things I particularly love about it is you've got Angelica Ross playing a woman. And, you know, Angelica Ross, of course, is a trans woman, um, but how often do we get to see trans women who are actors play cis women? Mm-hmm. Very rarely, you know? But I love that in Ryan Murphy's universe and in his horror world, like, why wouldn't she? You know, it just, I love that she's playing a woman and it's not really ever brought up. And, you know, so I feel like, and it, you know, she actually, you know, is wicked, but, everyone is oh it's american horror story it's american horror story no yeah, one is american good story. yeah yeah so i mean i i feel like um i don't know it's just it's it's been exciting to see the modern horror twist um i'm especially excited to see more films made by people of color and by women oh yeah you know? oh yeah and it's again with like the raging success of movies like get out like that it's really inspiring a lot of confidence in people. Yeah. Um, Just getting those names and faces out there. It's like, it's really hard at first, but push and push. And then you get 
um, like with the whole Pose series, doing using privilege for good. And if you put all of these things together along with the social movements we have right now and the activism we've got going on right now, like I am hopeful that we'll see more people of color and more women and, you know, more openly trans people in higher positions of power when it comes to the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. Because it's a very straight non-trans white male led industry just the entire entertainment industry yeah it's really like if you looked at it compared to other industries it's shocking because i think we think of hollywood and and the entertainment business as being super liberal which in in a way on a surface level it is but if you really look deep at like how many you know, because directors and producers just look like, what's the percentage of women? What's the percentage of openly queer people? What's the percentage of trans folks? What's the percentage of people of color who are in these high level positions of power at the studios or, you know, uh, on the crew, you know, making the movie? And you'll find that, no, that it's very, you know, this percentage is very small still. Yeah, it's slowly getting bigger. It's, yes, in, it in my opinion, not fast enough, but yes. we're we're working on it. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, it's just been so, it's been, I love seeing the evolution of things like queer filmmakers who've gone out and done it themselves and, you know, queer film festivals that have thrived and, you know, where, where there's always been this place for queer people to still enjoy things made by queer people for queer people. And now it's almost like Hollywood is realizing we can make money off them. <laughs> it's like unfortunate that it takes yeah. capitalism at it again. Yeah. Of but, course, of course. But if if they see the profit, like maybe that will start to open doors for people. So well, as silly as it sounds, I mean, it was a it was really considered revolutionary to allow a woman to direct Wonder Woman, you know, because it was a multi-million dollar giant, you know, comic book popcorn summer blockbuster. And what happens? She hits a home run. Yeah, you know, it made a ton of money. It it was fabulous. People loved it. And it's like the same thing with Get Out. It's like, you know, and the same thing with Ryan Murphy, you know, taking over FX. It's like he makes something like Feud. You know, only a gay man is going to make uh, an entire series about the fight between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, right? But it was amazing. It's, it was so good. But now, and it's, it's we're, again, we're, we're seeing the success and we're hearing the stories of success and we're hearing the stories being shared, whether it's the personal stories or the stories that queer people are making or that women are making or that people of color are making. And it's, it's, it's really amazing to see it starting to pop up more. Yeah. Um, well, this has been a lot of fun. I, I have loved this talk. I feel like we could just talk for hours, honestly. (laughs) Um, I agree. I agree. But, uh, real quick, one of the things that I do in wrapping up is I have each of my guests answer the same question. If you were to meet like younger you when dealing with that otherness or were to meet someone who was in a very similar position with you, like when younger you was dealing with that otherness, what advice would you give 
to people kind of struggling to find themselves and sort out that feeling of otherness? Okay, so my advice would be to uh, know that you're not alone and that you will find people who are like yourself um, out in the world. And that if you don't fit in with your community or your family, your biological family right now, understand that we in the queer world uh, have, have this concept of chosen family and that you've got to go out there and find your people and they're out there. Um, so don't give up. And if you have to buckle down and just survive a few more years until you can get out, then do that, you know, but hang in there because, you know, as dark as it seems right now, and especially if you feel alone, you know, just know that so many of us went through that and um, your chosen family is waiting for you. I've, I've well, that's one of my favorite things about the queer community is the found family. It's, yeah. it's life-saving. It really is for so many people. And thankfully nowadays it's much easier to make connections like online, <laughs> you know? And so it has gotten easier, but that sense of otherness is still very prominent. So yeah. now Peaches, where can our lovely listeners find you online or what do you want to plug for yourself? Oh, I met all the, the, well, I don't have a lot of shows going on right now because of yeah. uh, what's happening. I actually did do a show uh, yesterday with the Rocky Horror uh, women, um, Columbia and Magenta, because Rocky Horror turned 45, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but for the time being, if you want to follow me and my antics, I'm on Instagram at the Peaches Christ. I'm on Twitter at Peaches Christ. I'm on Facebook as Peaches Christ. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, I will put all of the links in the description below. If you uh, go onto our social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, I will tag her accounts there. And uh, now turn for my plug. You can find us basically anywhere you get your podcasts. We update every other Friday and uh, we are slowly spreading like a virus to any place that you, you get your podcast fix. And if you would like to support this podcast and other queer led projects, please consider uh, checking out our Patreon and our Ko-fi for one-time donations. And now our Etsy store where we have pride merch as well as spooky merch based on my new podcast, Jar of Rebuke, which is a new queer-led horror comedy Midwestern Gothic podcast. So go check those out. And remember, all the world's a stage, so give them one heck of a show. This is Casper Oliver, joined by the amazing Peaches Christ, signing off. Bye-bye. Have you ever wondered what wanders the fields at night? Or have you seen lights out in the woods that you know are not lightning bugs or deer with just a few too many eyes? Well, all of these things are commonplace within the farm town of Wichton. Jar of Rebuke is a Midwestern Gothic horror comedy audio drama run by a queer-heavy cast and crew. Delve into the cornfields, explore the woods by the river, and make sure you bring your favorite dish to the local potluck, because Wichton is full of many fine folks for you to meet, creatures for you to encounter, and many mysteries for you to solve.
The creatures and hauntings within Jar of Rebuke are all based on real lore and legends from the Midwestern United States, from the black-eyed children to the not-deer to the Michigan melonheads. Follow Dr. Jared Hell's audio journal and his run-ins with these various creatures while trying to remember his forgotten past. With the voices of myself, Casper Oliver, as well as Vanessa Rosengrant, Ashley Kraft, Cecil Fox, and guests like Jason LaRock, Misha Bakshi, and Conrad Mishuk, as well as many, many more, providing their talents to flesh out the world of Wichden, the townsfolk within, and even the supernatural creatures themselves. Compared by listeners to things like Welcome to Night Vale, SCPs, the Magnus Archives, and Tannis, if those things but with a Midwestern Gothic twist seem up your alley, be sure to tune in on every 7th and 21st on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast fix for new episodes of Jar of Rebuke.